We don't trust each other to hold each other. That's what it is. I don't trust that if I were to fail or fall, you would pick me up. That's, that's, that's what's holding us back. That something somewhere along the line has been broken. And the process of healing that requires people to go, I acknowledge that this is what has been done. I'm willing to confront and to see it for what it is. And therefore we can start the process of building trust and creating the safety for us to feel like we've got each other's backs. You're listening to Omoya on African spirituality. The whole concept of the show is about reigniting and understanding African spirituality in the 21st century. We seek to walk this journey with young and elderly people alike. We will become a nexus whereby Singabandu, we can inquire together. We've identified people from different fields to talk about how spirituality feeds into their daily lives, be they musicians, healers, teachers, scientists, artists, and activists. Story is a significant aspect of our existence as Africans. As passed from generation to generation, it carries with it values and ethical codes. All this through good old communication. I am Atambile Masola. And I am Melisutando Bongela. On this episode of Umoya, we look at the idea of communication and its ability to facilitate forgiveness in a community and a family unit. And most of all, how is it that we can reignite a sense of humanity through talk? The idea of conveying a message to large crowds is often daunting, but some people have somehow cracked the code, and this is one of those people. I could sing the song forever. This song, made famous by Miriam Makeba and known to many as the click song, was told as a story to young Miriam by her mother. In my home language, it's a course is the term for a traditional healer or diviner. And the song tells us the story of a knock-knock beetle, the dung beetle, ukongotwane. You've just heard Zoya Mabuto, a public speaker and someone who takes the idea of African Renaissance less frivolously than most, but not without flaws. As a speaker, Zoya has immersed herself in corporate spaces where we all know that communication always forms part of the structural agenda, but isn't always mastered. It is in these spaces that she shares the power of her voice as expressed through storytelling. In a conversation that left all of us with goosebumps, Zoya demonstrates that there is nothing that beats communication that stems from a place of honesty. And above and beyond, she plugs into how history and space become characters in how we express ourselves. So to start off our conversation, um, we really just want to, I mean, we say Alazika Malako Uzoya, but our stories, our names come with stories. So what's your name, Gubanu Uzoya, and what's the story? Oh, I have a beautiful name. And my name Uzoya, 
is, is a Kosa name. It's a name that was given to me by my mother. I have a second name. I don't just have one name, but the name everybody knows me by is Uzoya. Uzoya. My second name is Milonche. Zoya Milonche. And I'll tell you about both names. So Uzoya literally means to go. It's a name that my mother gave me. And she says there was a, a political context that was tied to my name, like many other names of children who were born in the early to sort of mid-80s or late-80s. Um, our parents gave us names that were symbolic of the times. So Uzoya means to go, and her brother had uh, left to go to Botswana many years back. Um, he went to exile in Botswana. And my mother says that when I came, there was a hope that one day I would bring back home those who'd been displaced. And it's interesting because in, in a literal sense, I think I do that in my work, but also in a figurative sense, where I think with every client I work with, I literally feel like I'm doing the work of people, of bringing people back to themselves, back to home. So, 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 so the name, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm sharing this, right? Me too. <laughs> Zoya. If you look at the name Zoya in, in other sort of languages, cultures, etc., it's also a popular name in, in the Indian culture. There's also the name Zoya in Greek culture. And in both, it translates to life, hmm. energy, vitality, which... Also, you are. it's so tied to mm. the essence of who I am. Mm. Um, um, I ignite energy in others. I bring energy into a space, which in turn ignites the energy of those who share the space with me. So that's the name Zoya. Heavy. Heavy. Utu, our names precede us. There's even a wonderful Sutu saying, about how libizo kikisirumo. Almost. Mm. So situnyu angalama kama suwa piwayo. Utunyiwa uzanganje up. So kwa upewe la kama utunyiwe you've been sent. You are being sent. Ungu messenger nja kawen. So, so, you know, I, I look at my names and I go, I know um, in understanding my names, um, I've come to appreciate how much resonance they have for who I am and who I've become. Um, mm. okay. We'll come back to that. Okay. There's a yeah. circle there. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that. So, umamni, because there's also a story there. The mandrove, the mandrove guys, the figure of mandrove, and this was two tango. Um, but can you can if you feel? I, I, I will get there. I will get there. Um, mandrove by a zidla, go walk tall. Mandrove the show off. By Tandwe Chong Sakubo. A classical song, a single on love, when we're all together as on love, but Kalukote, you in love, and doing Kulugangaka. Basically, you can't miss the elephant. <laughs> it's beautiful. So, um, but of course, interesting as well, because if you think about um, the elephant in the room, and kind of that connotation as well. There's the flip side of it, right? Yes, this kind of I've elephant, this of big side. thing mm. that's in the room that's almost standing in the way of other things that need to get done. 
And so there's also that kind of flip side as well. That if it's a big thing, if we if we say, you know, I've got to be mindful of how I show up mm-hmm. and be mindful of Um so we're from Queenstown. Um um on my first trip there, and I might be taking things a bit further than what I should, but on my first trip to Eeu, um, I was with my mother. My parents had never taken us to Ezlalin. And I was with my mom and I think Gran and everybody else. But my mother, what I remember vividly is my mother saying to me, Because I was carrying a camera and I just kept taking pictures. How old were you? I was like 18, 17, 18. I'd never been. Um, but, and, and so for me, that trip was kind of, I, I was a tourist in that uh-huh. space. And, and, and as such, I've never owned it as home. I've never identified with it as home. And Kulanga is Lalin. Um, interestingly, when I heard stories of other children who went to Ilali homelands, villages, whatever we call them, um, I used to be fascinated by the stories I would hear. And so I would go with Barbara Angule to her homeland. And those became for me a place symbolic of like that, that, that essence, that, that, um, and and funoguti that rural, it's, it it isn't that it's, it's, well, it's kind of a raw, unfiltered Ubuntu. Exactly. You understand? Mm. It, it, it was kind of just abantu. Hmm. finding a way to make it happen in a very communal and and people seeing people kind of way. Hmm. And that appealed to me. Th- that appealed to me. And so I would escape with Barbara because I would just go to be with Abandu hmm. and yeah. then return to the city and become Indo. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> come back to this idea of what do we then do with Izutu our ancestral backgrounds in the absence of home in a sense and I, maybe I'm, I mean I'm, it's a question it's a more broader question but how have you then navigated that I haven't navigated it I've simply held on to what's been passed down I haven't questioned it I haven't explored it in its entirety um, and in Nakona it's interesting because Ubuntlovu comes through my mother. There's the missing element of my father. My mother was a single parent. I never met my biological father. And so I hold on to Ubuntlovu because it's all I know. It is what was given, right? I've always ever been surrounded by Ondlovu. Um, but but I've, never, I've, never, I've never taken it further. Um, as the years have gone by, when one becomes a mother to a child... The responsibility you have towards that child in terms of contributing to how they shape your identity then calls on you to take responsibility. And so even those connections that had been lost with my biological father, I found myself rekindling that search in a quest to further understand who I am at this kind of very basic level of human identity as it links to two human beings who were responsible to create me. Um, there's kind of this 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 energy sort of intersection happening daily, Skilana, as energies, even if I go away. 
So kind of in this physical form. So Gilana's energy is first and foremost. I'll share a very simple example to illustrate this. I always say to people or my clients or whatever, if you imagine the picture of, of an iceberg and the Titanic, and you imagine where they first made contact, the iceberg and the Titanic, was it on the surface or was it below the surface? Okay? Mm-hmm. You're smiling. Mm. It wasn't above the surface. Mm-hmm. Below the surface. You understand? People were still dancing when that Titanic hit the iceberg because as human beings, as a related like that, first and foremost, we touch at that unconscious, subconscious level and then we go, oh, hey, there's the face, there's the mm. name, there's the uh, All that other stuff you attach comes secondary to what happens in the unconscious. Yes. It's a scary place to be if you're not going to fully be there. A friend, a friend of mine told me a, a funny story that happened on the weekend. She was at the spa. She's a black woman. She was at the spa waiting in the queue and a white woman stood next to her and the white woman didn't greet or acknowledge her presence. And she was like, whatever, I'm also not going to acknowledge your presence. And so they kind of stood kind of growling at each other, mm. not acknowledging each other's presences. And then a few minutes later... The white woman's little girl, mm. maybe about four or five years old, pushing one of those children's tr- stro- tro- um, trolleys, mm. pushing one of those children's strollers. Tro- strollers. No, not a strolley, like a baby trolley. Mm. Yeah. Arrived at the scene and she kind of looked at my friend and she said, hello. Mm. And my friend was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah this is what this is what's meant to be happening. And she greeted the child because in her mind, she's like, the child is like, Wait a minute, there's something wrong with this picture. Yes. I don't know why you two are fighting. I just got to Earth. Exactly. And there's something that's meant to be happening 100%. if two people engage with each other. Mm, that's such a striking image. And that that's what we do to children. We teach them out of that energy because we come naturally with that. Exactly. We come wired to hey, read those exactly. energies. I think the last question related to this then for me is... You've, you've touched on it with the, your understanding of like the, the energies, but what's your spiritual practice and how did you... Because you've got a language for it, it seems. <sighs> um, when I was 10 years old and in standard two, they asked me what I wanted to become. I said I wanted to serve people and I wanted to become a missionary. Um, fast forward a couple of years later, when I was 16, I was serving on the church parish council and the average age group, aside from myself, was 65. Um, and then I joined. Wait, wait, what are you saying? I'm I'm trying to tell you about the journey. There was there was 65 year olds and 16 year old you. There was 16 mm-hmm. year old me, and then there were anything from about 60 to 80, <laughs> right? Average age being 65. So the average was about 65, or maybe 50 <laughs> to about 70, right? Okay. And so slap bang in the middle was age 65. Um, I kid you not, it was surreal actually, because I was like, I wonder if Bazal Pila. Like anyway, um, so so that was sort of uh, sixteen years. Um, at the time, my friends are going to parties and doing amazing things. Sixteen-year-olds do. I'm attending parish council meetings with these sixty-five-year-olds. Um, I I get introduced to something called Freemasonry through another friend who was fifty years old, and he gives me a book called The Hiram Key. Um, at some point I decide I'm not interested in the Anglican church and I start sort of research and I start going to what we typically call your, what do you call these? Pentecostal churches. So I go to assemblies of God. Um, my family has a huge hoo-ha about it because at the time I'd also been admitted as a lay minister and the youngest one at the time. (laughs) 
Yes. Um, Where, at the Pentecostal church or at the, at the Anglican church? church. Um, so at the Anglican church, I'm a lay minister. So I'm setting, I'm setting some kind, I'm setting some, some foreground to take you to where I've come to. Um, a few years later, I find myself interested in Islam. And um, I have a friend who, who's a Muslim who shares with me his Holy Quran. Um, and one day, my knees are sore, and I said to him, I need someone to pray for me. And he invites me to something called the Khadat. And I dress up, and it's Muslim prayers. And so I dress up, and I arrive at this place. We pray, and we pray, and we pray. I walk out, and I literally feel like I can walk again. Um, I'm interested in Zen Buddhism because I feel like the concepts that they, that they have are so relevant to, to, to how we can live life, mindfulness, um, being central to Zen Buddhist practices. So I am deeply fascinated by these things they call religions, etc., which are all held together by a fundamental principle called spirituality, mm. which is energy. So, so having walked a journey, I can identify with Christianity because but I'm not married to anything. I'm married to, to energy. I'm married to spirituality. I'm married to humanity, mm. human beings. I'm married to the energies that we are sort of enclosed in these bodies. And it's such a weird thing to say. Because I don't know why. It just feels like it's weird. So you'll hear me say something along the lines of, um, where do you turn when there is no hope? And I will say, turn to the cross. Because I believe in, in this concept of... of oh, the symbolism. Of the symbol, yeah, yeah, 100%. 100% in the symbolism of, of what, that, what, what, what that means, um, what it represents, what it stands for, what it symbolizes, I suppose. So, so you'll hear me say that in one breath. But in the next breath, um, you'll hear me sort of borrow from Zen Buddhism, um, etc. So, so I don't feel like I'm confined to any one faith necessarily. I feel like Zuzindo is net titles, but for me, what I call my practice is just like, like, a, like, a, like a divine energy awareness thing. I don't think I've got a language or a name for it. I must be honest with you. Um, and so I treat every interaction in that way. And as such, I have the opportunity to, to meet amazing human beings in whatever shape or form, in whatever physical form as well. Um, please, can I tell another story? I love stories. Mm. Um, when, I, when I wanted to, when I had just left corporate, and decided that I wanted to become the Southern African champion for public speaking. Was this in 2014? This was in 2014. I went around to different Toastmasters clubs looking for the person who'd become my mentor. I belonged to a club, so naturally one would assume that I'd find somebody from within my club or I'd go for the obvious people, the winners, the champs, the people who'd coach champs. I went around to different clubs and there was a woman. She was, she was sickly looking. She was fragile. She was skinny. She was, um, and she had like this, this persistent cough, but that wheezy cough from somebody who smokes too much. And she went up to deliver an evaluation of a speech that she'd heard. And I remember sitting there and thinking, that's my person. I don't care who says what, that's my person. That's the person. And her physical appearance was, it matched nothing like the person who you would say is going to mold this one to become the champion. I worked with that woman for like six to eight months. I'm getting teary because she's since passed on. Mm. 
and I can feel her a little bit. But I worked with her for six to eight months. She is the scraggly woman with like nine cats. She coughs nonstop. She's a, she's like a chain smoker. I hate smoking. I had left smoking and drinking out of my life perpetually. She was constantly having some wine and, and, and smoking her cigarettes. We worked together for six to eight months and we stood together as I held that big trophy. And and it was it was that. It was trusting that divine energy to guide me to the person who would be the person who, who must take me where I need to go. Mm. And it didn't look anything like what you might imagine if I told you, listen, I'm looking for a coach to may help me become a champion. Yeah. Um, in terms of practicing your faith in the everyday, can you, can you paint a picture of what that's like? So I love that question because it is everyday. And and what I found uh, challenging about kind of Christianity or any other faith for that matter was that it was it was reduced to a particular day. But they step out of the confines of that space and you're like, I'm man. Can't you what just happened in there? Um and so so the beauty of of kind of how I live is I say one, I do what I can with what I have where I am. And so every experience with every human being is for me a divine interaction. Um, when we met that day at that house, there was a divinity that held us together. A few months ago, no? A few mm-hmm. months June. ago. Yeah, June this year. It, 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 no one can explain what happened there. We know what happened there. Mm. But if we had to try to put it into words, it becomes difficult because we might lose people. We might lose other people who kind of go, you guys are being airy-fairy and you're talking about stuff that's whatever. But every day for me, every day it is that. Every day it's, it's, it's in waking up and honoring my beautiful children every single day. It's in honoring the man who I call husband you know, or partner or, or friend. Um, it's in stepping out into the world and interacting with people in a very deliberate manner. Can we just go back a little bit to your childhood growing up in East London um, and talk about your voice? Mm. Mm. Your company is called Zoya Speaks. Let's talk about this voice. Mm. Before we hear what Zoya says, can we unpack how Zoya got her voice? I remember you as somebody who was always a year older than me, who just had this voice of reason, not voice of reason in an argument, but just a general, very powerful presence when Mm. you spoke. Mm. You enunciated your words very clearly. Your power came very much through your voice, which is why you were good in debating, um, good in public speaking. I had no idea what Toastmasters was. And um, yeah, when did you meet this Mm. voice? When did you realize, okay, there's something in in this tool that I have and how have you then used that tool throughout your life to land here where your company is literally called Zoya Speaks? One thing I know to be true about about me as I show up in the world is I'm probably more comfortable standing on a platform than I am sitting in the audience for starters. <laughs> um, so I've always kind of been the person who's in the school plays and the rest of it, right? 
my mother encouraged all of this and I did this. So from a young age, I mean, I've got pictures of me. Um, I mean, even when I got a, a role as like a flower, I, I was the flower that spoke <laughs> in the play. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, when all the other flowers couldn't speak, the, the Zoya flower was the one who got the speaking part. Um, and so over the years, I've always kind of just been doing the stuff where I'm standing up on platforms, I'm speaking and it's doing something. Um, I remember in Sap B, grade two, I was in a play called The Peddler of Swafim. And I was this little black girl with huge eyes. And again, I was amongst the few who had a speaking part. And afterward, I, I couldn't get over how I literally grew like a fan base. Like, <laughs> like of like all these white mothers and all these kids from like prep school. And I, I couldn't reconcile in my head why I had just said a few lines in a play. So why the fan base? <laughs> <laughs> and years after this, like it followed me, like it haunted me actually at some point because they would ask me to repeat the line from the play. Do you remember the line? Um, it was it was something, keep your eyes peeled for the something, something, something. <laughs> anyway, um, but but right up until grade Senate 2, right up until like end of primary school, and I thought this is ridiculous now because this was Sabi. But over the years, kind of, this was this was the thread um, that was weaving itself through Ubomba. It took me going into corporate and and almost losing my voice. In fact, not even almost. It took me losing my voice in corporate, being in a space where I knew in Dukuba I'm not supposed to be here, but staying there because this is what people do, and and losing my self confidence, losing my self esteem, losing my sense of purpose in the world, not having a sense of where I was going or whether I was making any contribution. I was that person in corporate who, if I sat in a meeting and there was something of value I had to say, I would raise my hand, as and then I would school. as no no as if. As if I wanted to contribute, but secretly hoped that no one would see me. Hmm. I would, I would sweat. I would sweat under my arms. I would sweat. I would, I would, I would shake, um, because that space just kind of was not where I was supposed to be. And in the corporate space, I lost all ability to raise my voice. I didn't contribute. Nothing. I just stopped Having contributing. Having come from a childhood oh, where yes. that's what you were oh, doing. Yes. Oh yes. Over the years, it was whittled down. And it was whittled down by things like I used to I used to engage with people a lot. My energy comes from doing work with people. And they'd say to me, if you're done with your work, don't go and talk to people. You need to sit behind your desk and you need to play games on the computer if hey need bo, be. Hey bo, hey bo. Um, and it was things like that, things that were not natural to who I was. And so who I was was constantly being stifled until who I was didn't even have a voice until I was what everybody else in that space was. And people in that space didn't have a voice. People in that space weren't individuals. And that was when I was like, no man, this is not how life should be. Something is just not right. Incidentally, Balikani, my husband, had met me shortly after I arrived in Goli. And he says when he met me, he was like, this woman is fire. <laughs> He describes me as fire, as a fire energy. I'm crackling. Mm. <laughs> and and he says that when he noticed something was wrong, he kind of stepped in. And, and, and one of the sort of turning points was this man having a conversation with me and in the conversation saying to me, look, I can't actually do this with you anymore. And I can't tell you a reason why, except that you've just lost your fire. And I knew what he was talking about. Mm. 
I was like, yo, I, I hear you. And after that, I was like, I will do whatever it takes to get my fire back. And mm -hmm. that's when I was like, I, I'm quitting. I'm leaving this thing. Um, and I slowly had to find or rediscover who I was. In rediscovering who I was, I was awakened to the power of my voice. I'd never known that this voice was the power. I'd never known. I kind of was just doing the things that I was doing and I was doing well in these things and I was just doing it. But I'd never known what this thing was or, or, or the power it had until I lost it completely. I faded into something I was not. I lost the essence of who I was. And in rediscovering who I was, that's the first thing that connected me to me. When I stood up to speak, when I finally freed my voice and I was like, okay. There's power. There's something here. Why, why, why do lives change when you open your mouth to speak, when in corporate you were quiet and you felt like there was no purpose, there was no meaning to this life thing? And so it wasn't a, a discovery when I was young. When I was younger, I was just being me. Mm. This is just who I was. Until who I was wasn't good enough for whomever and I tried to fit into that concept of what looked like or what should be good enough and I realized I can't. Something's missing for, for who the me is in all of this. And then I, I stand up, I start speaking again, and all of a sudden things fall into place. And I'm like, I'm oh, man. This is the thing. This is what it is. In the work I do now, I, I, I help people. <laughs> As a speaker, Zoya has immersed herself in corporate spaces where we all know that communication always forms part of the structural agenda, but isn't always mastered. It is in these spaces that she shares the power of her voice as expressed through storytelling. It's positioned as public speaking coaching, because that's what it is. I say to people, look, um, it's called be heard, personally, professionally, powerfully. <laughs> Um, but, but what we do there is really to, I help people to uncover the power of their own voices. Um, and particularly people who are sitting in corporate who go, I'm fighting a system that every day is trying to dull my voice, to dim my voice, uh, to, to force me to lower my voice, um, to annihilate my voice. Um, and so I do that work in the one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, it's positioned as public speaking coaching because that's what sells. Mm. Um, it's a packaging um, it's a consequence of packaging that that's what I call it, but it's deeply spiritual work. Mm. Um, mm. we like kind of link. get into mm. yeah. I like that link because people are very afraid of that world, that word in that world. Yes. Mm. Of the word spiritual. Yeah. Mm. But actually I, I, I love the fact that you've made that link because that is hundred percent. Essentially. So, so that's, that's the calling. That's the work, um, deeply spiritual work. And I mean, if I, if I, and, and this is blowing my own horn a little bit, but, I could give you a phone number now and say, call one of my clients. We do transformative work. We do work that creates shifts in people's lives, uh, where lives change because of this work that we do. It's deeply, um, it's not easy work. Mm. Um, it's interrogating work. It's hard work. Um, there's a lot of pushing on my side in the beginning, but often it's followed by kind of this beautiful, soft, gentle landing when you rediscover who you are. And you don't even need me anymore. Um, and that's the beauty of it is that by the time we end the sessions or sometimes before we end the sessions, they don't need me. 
I have to force them and go, eh, at session number eight, we need to do two more. And they're just like, I'm good to go. I see it. They're flourishing. They've rediscovered bits and pieces of themselves um, that had been sleeping. And they go out there and I'm just like, okay. Because it was never about me in any event. Mm. It's about what what I can do with this thing that I've been given. Sounds to me like you're a healer. Because when I was thinking about your work and just previous conversations you had, I found myself thinking of like the voice as the conduit for understanding the human condition. Mm. And I mean, you captured it so well of this idea of bringing people home Mm. um, and bringing home people home to themselves and Mm. how much of that disconnection to ourselves that we have over time. Um, And I don't know if you could unpack that a bit more, maybe for your own journey, what were the things that you had to do to bring yourself home to yourself? Yeah, this was, I mean, this was hard work. So here's the thing. Um, I, I see Tandi Inyani as a band. Um, we we like to pretend that we we appreciate truth because it sounds like the right thing to say. But when we talk about truth, truth can also be hard hitting. Truth can be heavy. So I'll share a very deeply personal story about how in in the madness that was this corporate space that I hated, I found myself slap bang in the middle of an affair. So I cheated on my then partner, Bali. Cheated. And when I decided, or after he said to me, look, you've lost your fire, I was like, yo, I need, I need to do whatever it takes. I was resolved. I was determined to just kind of get my fire back. I knew I'd lost my steez. I also know what my values are. Um, and Uzoya, who I know, is not that person. Because when you cheat, you have to tell lie after lie after lie. You have to protect that thing. And so for me, um, I went to a course um, called Turning Point, and I decide I am going to tell him. And I tell him. And things erupt as they would. Except what was surprising was how the people around me, mother figures, came to me and said, how could you do that? You've broken the covenant of all covenants. No woman does what you've done and tells that's the stuff you take to your grave. And I was like, what? Njani? How do you say that's the stuff you take to your grave? That's why so many women die. She died and there was just upelile, right? Or people who die long before they are in graves or in coffins, right? And they're like, you can't do that. They made all sorts of analogies. Right? How could you do this? How could you do this? Right? And and that was gobsmacking for me. Interestingly enough, Umakulu was the one person who, when I called to say, Makulu, this is what's happened. And I've told Bali, what Umakulu, I when I'm done, I'm even now. And that was like, okay. Because then she knew me. Mm. She knew me. She knew the essence of me. She believed in that. She didn't offer a word of judgment. She just said to me, it's in line with who you are. And I was like, okay. So, 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 it one, it was deciding that I would pursue truth and a life of truth at whatever cost. That if it meant that Upali was not going to see beyond this journey I had chosen, then 
it, it was going to be the end. But I also believed and knew that Bali knew who I was. Mm. Bali knew who I was. Bali knows who I am. And so I kind of held on to that. And, and that's what's kind of sustained the relationship, where there's just the promise of truth, even when things are not easy to hear, even when things aren't easy to digest. Um, and, and we're hoping to pass that on to the girls. Um, you know, so, so it has been rigorous work on self, rigorous work on self, confronting the demons, um, confronting Izind or like, you know, the, the abuse I saw at the hands of people who were male figures. Um, and this is a theme that's prevalent in black communities. I can't speak for white communities because I didn't grow up in white communities per se. Um, but prevalent in black communities is kind of this father figure um, who's been emasculated. And, that's a, and, and even then, when we say emasculated, it's an understanding we have given ourselves um, to, to make sense of the madness that we had to watch, witness, endure growing up. Um, the picture of my uncle who held a knife um, to my mother and me sitting looking at him going, hi, man. Siblings love each other, so how do you do that? The picture of a religious grandfather who on the one hand abuses alcohol and then beats this absolutely amazing woman to a pulp. Um, the picture of my other uncle who doesn't raise a hand but who's abusive in his absence, right? Kind of this woman who has to do everything. Right? Because I care Colombo. So it was dealing with those angers. It was dealing with those frustrations. It was dealing with going to or it was dealing with being a, a first um girl grandchild um to, to, to a grandfather who made me feel in Dokuba he wanted a first grandchild who's a boy. Um and 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 going back to those instances where I would stand outside in the cold, delinde transport, because he he shouldn't get cold. And then I would have to go to him inside and go e transport you know? And then he comes out from the warmth. So so it's all of those things where I'm like, you Elizabeth. And, and it's cruel to us while we're still kind of trying to make sense of it and, and, and having to, to look those things dead in the eye and go, they're not outside of me. They're very much a part of who I am. They're very much a part of, of who I've become and I need to own them as such. Um, so that's the one, kind of dealing with things, confronting things as they are. I used to struggle with memory. And after I'd done the work, after I had, had looked at these things, after I had been taken on a journey of accepting them as part of my life, my memory did amazing things where it unlocked. And in my memory unlocking, I remembered my mother being pregnant with me. So I had kind of this feeling or this, of, or this remembrance of my mother being pregnant or carrying me in her stomach and making the decision to keep me in the midst of what was happening in her own life at the time. And and what that did was to elicit an empathy I can't explain, where I was like, sometimes we're so self-consumed, we can't even literally wear the shoes of another and realize that all of us are dealing with demons. You know? Mm. Um, 
So it's 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 that it's that work that I had to do. I've had to do work of forgiveness. Um, yeah, let's talk about that because I I, I want to know how, what's your relationship to forgiveness then, when you foregrounded us with with what you've just said. It's easy to forgive when when you can contextualize things beyond yourself. It's easy to forgive. I I was able to understand how Utadom Kulu found himself and and it's not it's not justifying his behavior by any means but I was able to understand how Utadom Kulu found himself being the person that he'd become when I learned his story outside of Zoya um a man who'd been deserted by his mother his own mother deserted him he had a stepmother who never treated him like his own etc and a whole lot of other things that happened in between that led to him you know living and becoming what he was so so in appreciating the other side of the story or the other story empathy flows empathy flows um but this concept of forgiving is such a such a big one because again i think our understanding of it is i think it's narrow <laughs> i think it's limited i think i think we think that we give forgiveness to another person i don't think so I think if you break the word forgiveness down it is to give before to give before somebody asks for you to give it and when you give before you're not doing it for them you're doing it for yourself forgiveness is 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 primarily about you before it is about the next person and you don't do it because it is required you do it because it just must be done you give before Ezoya says give me a sorry because you did something wrong to me. I give it before. Dikolele kukuqola. Ukuqola is 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 peace. You're not going to give peace to any human being by any stretch of your imagination. You can only give peace to yourself. And so when you talk about this concept of forgiveness, it's not about the other person, it's about what you give to yourself and what you open yourself up to in letting go of what others would necessarily hold on to. You let it go, you release it, you're free. The other person only becomes relevant in so far as they say, I want to continue to journey with Zoya. Then I say, if you want to continue to journey with Zoya, Zoya forgave you already. She even wishes you well in your life. But the process of rebuilding what was broken is where you need to then say, I acknowledge what I have done in order for that kind of healing to happen. Mm. 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 That's incredibly useful. <laughs> Why? Because we're at a moment in our history where all of a sudden the word forgiveness has become a weakness. It's mm. become a weak word. It's become, it, you are taking away from yourself mm. rather than giving to yourself. Mm. And it's right next to the word reconciliation. Mm. And we're compounding these words as almost easy to go in the mm. 21st century where people don't want to hear the word forgiveness because it seems as if you are defecting to the mm. other, you you're saying you say you you're giving power to the other person mm. i want to ask this question i want to relate what i'm about to ask to what you, to what you said earlier or what we we're talking about earlier regarding the voice and how you help people find their voices so your work you're interested in people it's very palpable in mm. how you speak um mm. how you sound and obviously what we've what we've read and watched about you in preparation for today 
Um, what would you say is the most consistent thing that keeps holding individuals back? And then I want to relate this thinking generally to the people and us, our generation, um, where we are in our country right now. What is the thing that that you have found is the consi- most consistent in holding people back from discovering their core selves? Is that, is that okay? Is that, is, that an, is that another way I can ask the question? Or no, no. I'm, do you understand it? I'm, I'm processing it. So as you were asking the question, what came to mind instantly was fear. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes beyond that. Because then you ask fear of what? Mm. It is fear of each other. What holds people back every time, and particularly with the speaking stuff, I do, I do like, I give people little slips of paper and I say to them, I'm going to ask you to stand up and speak impromptu. What's the first thought that comes to mind? And everywhere, any space, in corporate, non-corporate, government, wherever, the first thought that comes to mind when you ask people to stand up and to deliver an impromptu is what others will think of me. We don't trust each other to hold each other. That's what it is. I don't trust that if I were to fail or fall, you would pick me up. That's, that's, that's what's holding us back. That something somewhere along the line has been broken. And the process of healing that requires people to go, I acknowledge that this is what has been done. I'm willing to confront and to see it for what it is. And therefore, we can start the process of building trust and creating the safety for us to feel like we've got each other's backs. That's what's prevalent across the board. Mm. I don't trust you to have my back. I don't trust that you'll pick me up when I fall. I don't trust that, you know, I, I, I can even look out for the, for the other person. We just don't, we don't trust each other to hold each other. I don't know how else to express mm. it beyond that. Mm. And so there's this perpetual fear. So Egandoni, so Egan. You know. And I feel like that's what's kind of standing in the way of a lot of what can happen um, in terms of building our country, healing our country. Abelungu are so... My, my tolerance <laughs> for, for, for white people in South Africa is, is tested time and time again because I feel like they will only do the work insofar as it maintains their status quo and it affords them but only a little bit of discomfort. Abelungu don't come to the party hard enough. Abelungu are not aware of the daily lived real realities beyond a squatter camp and what have you. They attribute in Yetu to the like the dire circumstances when in and Cases and, and proven cases of inequality are something as small as you remember Clarendon, they used to always want 150 for this, 200 for this, and they'd want it the following day. Mm. I would always marvel at how the white kids, it was a non concern for them, something so small. They just want 150 rands tomorrow. It would be a pain point for me because I would think, Esh. Is our necessitator SMS or can you da pali letter? Okay, one fifty a funeka and I funeki ngom somye okay next week. If funeka ngom so that's when I lent the post dated check. 
Right. Yeah, right. Post data checks because of that very thing. Yeah, I understand. Mm. So I always feel like, you know, understanding the grasp of the issues at play is is so far removed from some some of the kind of daily realities that are here. We surround Zabo. We chomiza bandu. We chomiza bandu na babo. You know, you know what I mean? Mm. That we kind of point to those to those very bad examples for cases of how dire the situation is, and I'm going no. If you just open your eyes. And this is where I think we fail as a banbam nyam. I made a note the other day, and I don't know where I was, but I was like, you, um, twalo or twala, not just by, by, by the black person, but by the black woman. Because the black woman is, is told to endure suffering. She wears suffering as a badge of honor. And and when things are messed up and completely effed up, actually, she must still kind of step out there and radiate this 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 facade. Mm. You understand? Of how is it right? I was at a poetry thing. I was at a poetry. I was emceeing a poetry event actually, and the poet's mother was there. The poet was sharing stuff that I could see was making the mother cringe about the fact that they live in a shack and they have irrealities at daily bread. And she was dressed up smart, but she's masking irreality. Because we show up regardless. That's just who we are. That's what we and that's what we're taught we must do. We show up regardless. You understand? Mm. And the city even. Overdressed. Go to the to the tower as a whistle. You buy a competition, suffering as a mount. You know? So I feel like it's not responsibility, Tina, to undo a little bit of that. And and this is why I say, nah, I, I, I'm in pursuit of truth. <laughs> um I, I really every day I'm saying, how how do I live more truthfully? How do I honor truth in my everyday existence, in my everyday experiences? How do I own my moments of tired? I remember I arrived late. That's my theme. Um, for a big facilitation thing, right? And a client, and I won't mention the client's name, but it's quite like it's it's quite a reputable client. Um, and I get there and I'd overslept. I was tired and I overslept. And I remember arriving there and in my head playing out the multiple scenarios, but also what I might say to make up for the fact that this has happened. And I was like, <laughs> I rocked up there and I said, hi, everybody. I'm really sorry. I overslept because I had a really bad day with the kids. The, the, <laughs> the reception was very different. It's the last thing they expected to hear because, first of all, there's this professional walking in here. It's a huge client. They were in a state driving themselves crazy. I rocked up then. I said, I overslept. And what was the response? Of course, they didn't know what to do with themselves because mm. people lie. I no, know, right? People prefer lie. lies. Mm. They would have preferred the lie and then the lie would have given room for people to have the skinner behind my back. Now I just said I overslept. Mm. Now what can what I more do? is there? What can be done? True. Mm. Right? And they kind of just swallowed it in, took it in. And the one lady went as far as to say, thank you for, for telling us the truth. And I said, because there's no other way. Mm. And, and so it's a courageous thing to, to aspire to truth. Even because people prefer lies. People want you to tell the lie. Right? And yet we're living in a time where truth is a currency. Calling things out is a currency. Mm. Exposing is a currency. Mm. And yet I don't know if there's courage necessarily attached to that. Because... 
it's the kind of truth that doesn't seek to liberate. It's a kind of truth that's there to humiliate. A hundred percent. Kind of put somebody down. Mm. This idea of, mm. well, it's all encapsulated in wokeness for me mm. and the posture that wokeness has taken mm. um, as much as it has given us a voice mm. as, as young black people around the world, brown people, queer people, trans people, all kinds of people around the world. There's something about it that at some point becomes unsustainable mm. and is the reason why it's become unpopular is mm, because of this wokeness. heightened sense of wokeness the where posture. it seems as if if you if I'm forgiving you for doing something wrong I'm weak that is because and I think a lot of people around the world we are in this moment where there there's a there's a mm. a confusion of of what is courageous and and I'm not saying that wokeness has not taken us to a place where we needed to be. We mm. did need to kind of get angry, bang on the tables, mm. scream, holler, mm. create a language, create a lexicon around mm. our pain, name mm. it and say, this is called white tears. And mm. this is what we do with white tears. Mm. This is called toxic masculinity. And this is what we do with toxic masculinity. Mm. But it seems as if it's reached a point where our, our even the word humanity is kind of a weak word to say. It's, it has its, its all. limitations. Um, I mean, I struggle with wokeness because I don't. I mean, moya wobo woke. I struggle with it because I just. It has a language, yeah. I know I'm not woke. I'm dienyindo maybe, but I know I'm definitely not woke, and maybe that's why I'm, that's my part of my reluctance of stepping into the conversation because I'm just like it's another worldview. It's another discourse mm. that I've never had access to or I've never had a desire to have access to. Maybe I perform it in various ways because it's a performance. That's what I see. And maybe that's me being belittling it. Um, and perhaps that's that's my struggle with it is that Ndibona and maybe because and you're cool kids. So Ndibona and they're cool kids. But also. I've seen you at some work events. I go to work events. <laughs> so I can so go we to attend work, work okay. events. I, yeah. I resonate with you completely. I, I feel like the woke movement completely missed me. Um, I, I don't speak its language. I see it from far. I see what, what its aims and aspirations are. I don't necessarily connect with it entirely. Um, and while some of its aspirations certainly have contributed very meaningfully to advancing the discourse, um, there's bits of it where I feel like um, there was a lot of, what's the word? Almost a self-indulgent aspect of it where, I mean, I'd, I'd also never seen so many people hurt each other as I saw hey, in that woke space hey. because it was about levels of wokeness. And I'd also never seen a space that then also created a fear where people were so scared about, about, what, they, uh, about what the feedback would be. On, on some of the comments they made or how they showed up. And I was like, yay, when it gets to the point where people are now also trading on eggshells even amongst themselves, there is a little bit of room for concern. So yes, it has it has had some wonderful spin-offs, um, but it, it, it also for me has been something I have been able to look at from the outside and go, I don't altogether connect and resonate. It was a movement, it was a performance um, to some degree, not entirely, to some degree. Um, there, there was the an article about that lady who who started the I think it's the hashtag Me Too movement. Yes. Um, and the article points to how she even thinks people have lost their way along the line. 
um, and it's become quite a self-indulgent, um, almost narcissistic yeah. um, decision to now hate men mm-hmm. versus to punish people who have, you know, they have been perpetrators. And there is this kind of overriding um, um, sort of conversation around patriarchy. Mm-hmm. But it's also turned us in, into women um, who who just who are almost narcissistic. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not able to express myself in those scholarly woke terms per se. But there was an interesting article where she says we need to revisit why we started that movement in the first place, because I'm of the view that we've lost our way along the line. Mm, so where does wokeness lie in these conversations, right? I think it's Which the beginning. Is it? It's, it's is it the heart? There. Is it the, the gut? It's the is it the intellectual? Is it the physical? Because the question begs for me, is wokeness about Ubuntu in wokeness? And not to say that, Ayiko, but I'm posing that question for myself, is that is there Ubuntu in wokeness? Um, and how do we have that conversation? Do we even, I mean, I was talking to a friend recently, about just the very word is like you. Nancy says so. You got a little hijacked Ubuntu so much as I was not seven the silly Ubuntu because it's Ubuntu. <laughs> it's not even Ubuntu. But where do? How do we push? Because we want this thing. Because wokeness is pointing in a particular direction, mm. but it's leaving so many people out because of this fear factory that it also builds. Um, but that's the question. Like where I can't place myself because for me, having been raised the way that I was raised. Oh, my mom said me Ubuntu in a way. And I mean, not that I get it right, but like I can pick up. And she would even use the language. Like the worst insult that she could give you of mm-hmm. And that's when you knew the pain of what had happened. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I struggle with it on, on those grounds because I'm, I'm struggling to find the texture of it mm. in a sense. Mm. Where I stay now, um, children gravitate towards our home quite a lot and it could be because there's just wonderfulness because we have ice cream and all sorts of other things that children like. But just today, there was a group of kids who were playing just outside the house, a whole lot of them, every day without fail. They all come from wherever they come from. They swarm. And, and I say swarm because bees go bzzz. And so that's kind of what you hear. It's just a whole mix of all these little people. And and no one teaches them really kind of how to treat each other, right? And where they, they mimic behaviors that they see, oh mama, no dada do, etc. But even at the level of Malakiwe, who's two years old, she she fits herself in there and they just they just have a way that that I feel like we could learn from number one. Abantwana have just got an, an absolutely amazing energy and thing about them that's that's a little bit purer than than the rest of us. And 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 in interactions, if you see a little baby, a little baby who's six months old or however old, ebona another child, they leap with excitement. You don't have to say to them, get excited because you're seeing a child. At the level of spirit, seeing spirit. They jump up for joy. They leap with excitement. And you go, and often mothers will go, I don't mistake, guys, Lando. I don't see fun It's what we need to learn again because mm-hmm. it is the essence of who we are. That's why we feel disconnected. 
That's why we're on the search to connect again. Because it's the essence of who we are. Siza si pete lando, siza lando, ungumdano mngingbe kusana apeta ngwako, ningabandona ni bangungu niya kukuza, kuku, kuku, kuku. Go to hospitals and ask what happens where they have all the little babies. They'll tell you the miracle of how those babies connect. Even in hospitals, bangungu, you think they can't connect. The spirit person or the spirit being that resides in them is what connects for me my view is that it is that which gets lost in the survival in this quest to survive in this quest to compete they had the audacity the other day to send me an invitation to speak and they said to me um we're asking you to speak at the professional speakers association and um you're going to be speaking alongside douglas kruger and I had to bite my tongue because a couple of years back they'd said the same thing and I beat him, um, you know. But but how? We and mem gelake, but he's also saying to me, "Une competition, prove yourself." And I thought if only he knew how I'm not in it to prove anything. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just there to do the work I'm there to do. But already unyova a thing, eti. Yeah, it's a competition. We want to see who's better than who. And I thought if only you knew. That I'm not there, you know. So it really is just about saying in Dokuba, Ubuntu is not a term that was coined. Ubuntu is what we've always been. That's what Ubuntu is. It's not a fancy term that was coined and that's been used and abused. It's who you are when you sit with me and there's a spiritual connection and you can't explain it. Ubuntu betu. It's you seeing me for who I am. When you look into my eyes, we are born. I feel seen by you. You feel seen by me right now. Right? That's yeah. what it is. Except it's scary. It's a scary place to be. Because you're is. just like, yo, did I just see you? It's a beautiful place to be, but it's a scary place to be. And so are we willing to take ourselves to those places which are uncomfortable, but which could potentially help us well? And, and that's the work. Mm. And it's everyday work. Can I leave a last thought? Yes, please. There's a wonderful lady, Margaret Wheatley. She's in the organizational design space, and she's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I follow her work, and one day she decides she's coming to South Africa. So I rock up at this thing, um, and the figures remember the same colors as well. So we're wearing the same colors. We're at this thing, and I'm just like, hmm, it's interesting. And, and the message she shares there is sometimes in the midst of this insanity around us, the question we've got to ask ourselves is how to create pockets of sanity. And pockets of sanity become what you do in the confines or in the immediate space that you have an impact in. So kind of this concept of the world shifting from being this out there place to the world narrowing down to where you are. And that's why I hold so dear to me this concept of do what you can where you are with what you have. You have a responsibility if you are in a family setup. You have a responsibility if you know, it's doing the work Every single day, every encounter with every single human being. Ubuntu Betu must shine through. And then those pockets connecting and causing a ripple effect that starts to make an impact in the world. Moya on African Spirituality is created by Atambila Masola and Melissa Tando Bongela. Together with our producer, Kakhisom Nisi, Navagazimanzi, the executive producer, and our editor, Spamandla Yende. Umoya on African Spirituality is a Kaya FM podcast. Look out for new episodes every second Thursday on kayafm.co.za. 
Follow Kaya FM on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for updates.